Well, friends, I ask you to be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. One of the great joys that we have as Christians is when we share the gospel with someone and, and they experience the miracle of regeneration. When God, by his Holy Spirit, comes and, and imparts new life to them. Isn't that one of our greatest joys? I try not to use the language, I led someone to Christ. And the reason for that is usually when people come to Christ, there have been many links in the chain. But once in a while, God may use you or me to be the last link of the chain, to speak words which bring them, as it were, across the finish line into the kingdom of God. Isn't that a joy to witness regeneration, the Holy Spirit coming in and making a dead sinner alive? There's no joy that compares to that. I think most of us here who are parents have seen our children born into the world. In a previous generation, that wasn't so. But for us, and for the oldest one here, and I believe that's me, we have seen our children born into the world. And that's a great joy. But it doesn't compare to seeing someone born into the kingdom of God by the regenerating grace of God. It's a great joy. But surely, conversely, one of our greatest griefs and sorrows as Christians is when we witness to people, we share the gospel with our loved ones and our friends time and time again, and we pray for them for years only to face a hardened heart of stubborn resistance and unbelief. If seeing someone come to Christ is one of our greatest joys, facing the hardness of the heart of a blind sinner, especially one that we love, has to be one of our greatest griefs. It was to our Lord Jesus. And in the short passage we study this morning, we're going to see Jesus coming up against hardened unbelief in his enemies. And there are some lessons for us to learn from that. Our text is only three verses, Mark 8, 11 to 13. Follow or listen as I read. I say to you that, I'm sorry, I am in Matthew. That will not work. Did not prepare to preach from Matthew. Mark 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Well, as we drop down once again in the middle of Mark's gospel, let's get our bearings. First of all, let's get our bearings chronologically. Where are we with regard to time of Jesus' ministry? He has probably entered his last year of ministry on the earth. The early Judean ministry is behind him. And by the way, Mark says nothing about the early Judean ministry. If you want to learn about that, it is in John chapter 1 to 4. But the great Galilean ministry is also behind him. That's what Mark has been occupied with, his ministry in the northern kingdom of Galilee. And that's what we have studied for these chapters. He is currently in what has been called his retirement ministry. He's not retiring from ministry, but he's focusing on training the 12 for his eventual departure. Ahead of him is the late Judean ministry in the southern kingdom of Judea, the Perean ministry, and then he will face the culmination of his ministry as he dies on a cross. And let's get our bearings geographically. Where is Jesus when this little dialogue takes place? Well, he has been up north, north of the Sea of Galilee, and he has come down to the Decapolis, that ten-city confederation on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, verse 10 tells us, and immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. So he crosses the sea from the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee to the western part, to this place called Dalmanutha. Now, no one knows where Dalmanutha was, but there was a, a, a cave um, that was in, in a cave. Uh, uh, a name was found by the name of Dalmanutha. So there is speculation that this place, Dalmanutha, was there on the western shore of, of the Sea of Galilee, south of the plain of Gennesaret. Well, upon learning that Jesus um, uh, is there, the Pharisees came out. They came out from the city, no doubt, of Capernaum, and they come out to confront him. That's about all the Pharisees did in their interaction with Jesus. They confronted him. It's a reminder to us that the entire ministry of Jesus was not conducted in a friendly setting, not even a neutral setting, but his entire ministry was conducted in the context of these enemies breathing down his neck, watching him to try to find fault with him. What tremendous pressure, what tremendous stress the Lord Jesus was under throughout his ministry. The Pharisees confronting him is also a reminder that in the not-too-distant future, it will be by their scheming and by their malice that he will be put to death on a cross. But from these few verses, I've drawn a simple outline. The request for a sign, the refusal of a sign, and then the retreat from those who are asking for a sign. The request for a sign. Verse 11 says the Pharisees came out, probably from the city of Capernaum, and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Consider the suspicious nature of the request. Why is it suspicious that they would ask him for a sign? Because, friends, they have already seen an abundance of miracles, astounding miracles that Jesus has already done. A sign, the word Greek, Greek word semion, points away from itself to something else. That's the purpose of road signs. We have uh, diamond-shaped yellow signs, and they usually give a warning. Falling rocks, deer crossing. I was in the state park this morning praying, reviewing the sermon, and there is a diamond-shaped sign that has a horse and a rider on it because there's a corral. And you want to be careful because there may be a person leading a horse across the road there. And so it's warning. The purpose of a sign is not to point to itself, but to point away from itself to something else. A sign is a pointer. In the Bible, a sign is, is an extraordinary token that proves something. For example, when God gave the sign of the rainbow in Noah's day, it was a promise that he will never again destroy the earth by water. Sometimes the prophets in the Old Testament, when they made a long-range prophet, which nobody would be alive to see its fulfillment, they would give a short-term prophet to prove that the long-term prophet will be fulfilled. When God brought judgment upon the house of Eli, I'm going to judge your house long-term, he said, and the proof of that is that your two sons will die on the same day a short-term sign that the longer-term prophecy would be fulfilled. Miracles in the Bible are said to be signs. They are validation that the one doing the miracle is from God. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Was Peter from God? Was John from God? Was Matthew from God? Well, when they did miracles, it was a proof 
that they were sent by God and empowered by God. Jesus uh, did miracles in order to validate that he was indeed the God-sent Messiah. And in the case here, the, the Pharisees are asking for a sign from heaven. Now, did they literally want a sign from heaven, such as when God thundered in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, when God, as it were, um, stopped the earth rotating in the days of Joshua, so Joshua could have the daylight to finish the, the victory, the battle, or when God brought fire from heaven to consume a thrice-doused altar of Elijah? Were they literally looking for some heavenly sign like that? Well, whatever they were looking for, it was suspicious in nature. Why? Because Jesus had already given them abundant signs. He had already done numerous miracles, astonishing things that supplied plenty of proof that he was the heaven-sent Messiah. All of that they were disregarding and saying, Jesus, we want you to do a sign from heaven. That is suspicious. But beyond that, it's downright malicious. And consider the malicious motive behind this request. There are clear indications from the language of the text, as well as what we know about the Pharisees and their interactions with Jesus, that their motive was evil and malicious. First, it says they came to argue with him. Same word used in Acts 6 when certain ones came to argue with Stephen, who became the first martyr. Same word used in Acts 9.29 of the Jews who argued with the Apostle Paul. And then it says they came to test him. Now, the word test in the Greek, perazo, is a neutral word, test or tempt. Whether it's positive or negative depends on who's doing it and what the motive is. So sometimes God tests us. He tests his people to prove our faith. He's got a positive motive. He wants you to come out proven. Other times, it's negative. It's a temptation. It's a test that wants a person to fail the test. I think it is safe to say that in this case, we should put a negative construction on it. They came to test him and to find fault with him. They had already rejected the many signs he had done before, which were not only supernatural acts of power, but benevolent acts of goodness, healing men's and women's bodies, delivering people from demons, feeding thousands, all these good works. And yet they were fixed in their judgment about Christ. He is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. Earlier on in Mark's gospel, when Jesus had done miracles, they ascribed it to Beelzebul. He's doing it by the power of the devil. And so they came to tempt him, to get him to fail. And so we see the request of the Pharisees, true to form. They're not open to the truth. They don't want to believe. They have no desire to be convinced. Despite a mountain of evidence, all the signs that Jesus had already done to prove that he is the heaven-sent Messiah, in him the kingdom of God has come. They remain unconvinced, full only of unbelief and malice toward Jesus. Now, from these Pharisees, friends, we, we can learn some lessons about the nature of unbelief. I want to call out three lessons that we can learn about unbelief in general. The first is unbelief always comes to God on its own terms. You see, in their unbelief, these religious leaders had rejected all the signs, all the miracles that Jesus had already done, and they said, we want you to perform a sign from, seven, from, from heaven. In other words, Jesus, we're going to tell you what to do. 
We want you to follow our agenda. You jump through our hoops and do it our way. Unbelief comes to God on its own terms. But that is foolish. That is arrogant. And that is futile. Jesus is God. And in coming to God, we need to let God be God. And we need to allow God to tell us the terms for coming to him and humbly bow to his terms and his agenda and not try to impose our own. And I would say, if anybody is here who is not a believer, you need to take this to heart. Don't think that in coming to God, you can come on your own terms. It's what people often try to do. They think in their mind, you know, there's a heaven and there's a hell, and I believe that, and I want to go to heaven. And I think I can go to heaven if I just do enough good works, if my good works outweigh my bad, or if I'm not as bad as the kind of criminals that make the newspaper, if I am religious, if I go to church, if I get baptized, I can go to heaven by something I can perform or do. Friend, what you're doing when you say that is you're trying to come to God on your terms. You're trying to set the terms. I think I can go to heaven based on this or that. But it's not for you to make the terms. God is God, and he makes the terms for how we are to come to him. And there's only one way, and that is by repentance and faith, by turning from our sin, turning from our, our rebellion, turning from our independence, and putting our faith solely and squarely in Jesus Christ. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life that met God's perfect standard. Only Jesus offered himself up to die to pay the price for our sins, a payment which God accepts. And so don't be like these Pharisees who are trying to come to Jesus on their terms, set the agenda. No, God sets the agenda for coming to him and you must submit to that agenda. You must repent and believe in the gospel. Don't think that you can come any other way. Another lesson we learn from the unbelief of the Pharisees is that unbelief is moral in its root. The Pharisees had seen and heard so much. They were there when Jesus healed that paralytic man that was lowered through the roof, and he said, take up your bed and walk, and he did. They witnessed that miracle. In chapter 3, where there's a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, and Jesus pronounces him clean, and, and the man's hand is restored. They witnessed that. And not only were the things they personally witnessed, but they had the, the testimony of an abundance of people who had been touched by the healing hand of Jesus. They knew so much. They had seen so much. But friends, evidence was not the issue. Evidence is never the issue. The Pharisees here and elsewhere are a prime example of the truth that is taught to us in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, we have the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man dies and he goes to Hades. He goes to hell and he's suffering in torment. Lazarus, the poor man who was neglected by Lazarus, dies and he goes to heaven, represented as Abraham's bosom. And there in that story, the rich man is said to say to Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brothers who are headed for the same place he's in, hell, and they will repent. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But then the rich man comes back showing his sense of the insufficiency of the scripture. And he says, no, Father Abraham, 
If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The scriptures aren't enough. But if they see a man risen from the dead, then they will believe. And Abraham makes this profound response. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You see what is behind that statement? It is the fact that unbelieving people do not suffer primarily from a a lack of proof from a want of empirical evidence for God and for Christ and for the creation and for heaven and hell. Man's problem is not intellectual. It's not a lack of evidence. His problem is moral. His problem is he has a corrupt, rebellious heart that is fixed on on sinning and turning away from God. Consider the moral assessment made of the Pharisees in Luke 16, 14 and 15. It supports this point. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Why were they scoffing at Jesus? Why were they unbelieving? Because they loved money. Because it was their sin, not a lack of evidence, but their sin that kept them from believing in Jesus. In another place, John 5, 44, Jesus says, How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not receive the glory that comes from the only God? What kept them from believing and seeking the glory of God? They loved the praises of their fellow man, the fear of man, being a people pleaser. That's a moral issue. They would not believe and could not believe, not because there was a lack of evidence, but because of a moral corruption. They were committed to their sin. And so unbelief is, is moral in its root. And thirdly, unbelief is irrational in its fruit. Unbelief is so stubborn that it will cause people to go into irrationality. Do you realize what the Pharisees had to do in order to deny the miracles and the identity of Jesus? They had to deny their own physical senses. They had seen with their own eyes the miracles that Jesus performed. They had to lapse into irrationality in order to continue to disbelieve Jesus. They were looking raw miracles in the face, and they remained unconvinced. In reality, no empirical proof would convince them. If Jesus had accommodated to them and done a sign, they would have said he's doing it by the power of the devil. And by refusing to do a sign, they would say, there, see, he he doesn't do a sign, there's no validation. And either way, they wouldn't believe in him. Now, when we understand these things about Pharisaic unbelief, we understand something about the unbelief that we confront with those family members and loved ones and friends and acquaintances that that we try to bring the gospel to, because the same root is there in them and the same fruit. Understand that your loved ones, your family members and mine and friends who do not believe, there's a, a moral root to their unbelief. Their problem is not a lack of evidence. Their problem is not an intellectual one. Their problem is a moral one. Now, to be fair, sometimes people do have honest intellectual questions about the faith. And to them, we owe honest intellectual answers to the best of our ability. We need to give reasonable people reasonable answers. But ultimately, unless God opens their heart, they will not believe they will scramble 
into irrationality. Have you ever had an unbeliever you're talking to pose a, a, a challenge and a question, and you answer the question to what should be their intellectual satisfaction? And then they jump to another, but what about this? And then you answer that, but what about this? And they go on and on in a desperate attempt to scramble away from the truth, even into irrationality. And so here's a couple, they're living together unmarried, and they're professing to be Christians, and, or whether they are or not. And you say, you know, this is contrary to the, the law of God. This is sin. Oh, well, that's just your interpretation. And then you turn them to the text that says, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, non-interpretation problem. But, um, you know, then they say, well, um, we really have no choice. You know, we can't make it economically unless we live together and combine our incomes. And, and God understands. Have you had people say that? God understands our situation. And I respond by saying, yeah, God understands that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what God understands. Well, then they may find fault with the Bible. Well, the Bible's full of contradictions. <clears throat> or they might challenge the justice of God. They, they deflect attention away from themselves. What about all those people who haven't heard? How can God judge them in, in heathen places? They may attack your person. Why are you being so judgmental? Or they might say, you know, the Bible's culturally relative, and that was then, but this is now. Or they may just bow out of the conversation and leave. But in their attempt to hold on to their sin and to run away from truth, they will, they will flee even into irrationality. They'll deny rational thinking because their sin is moral in its roots and irrational in its fruits. But now let's consider the refusal of a sign. They, they make a request. It is very suspicious. Indeed, it is malicious. The refusal of the sign in verses 11 and 12. Get myself back to Mark chapter 8, 11 and 12. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus sighed deeply. Now, a couple chapters earlier, one chapter earlier in chapter 7, we saw Jesus sigh. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. That was when he had in front of him a man who was deaf and dumb, and it caused Jesus to sigh. That Greek word was stenazo. This is an intensified word, anastenazo. It's stronger. It means to draw sighs from the bottom of the breast. It says it came from his spirit. The spirit is the inner man, the inner part of us, usually in reference to God. And we ask, what wrenched this, this deep sigh from the breast of our Lord? Well, it was a sigh expressing sorrow and grief, perhaps mingled with exasperation and indignation over the, the hardness of the hearts of these Pharisees. So much light had they been given so long had they been exposed to the means calculated to convince them who Jesus was. So many plain indications were given to them that in Jesus has come the kingdom of God. And yet they were fixed and hardened and obstinate in their unbelief. They could swallow all the man-made traditions of their elders. And yet when the Son of God comes with abundant proof, they reject him. It made our Lord's holy heart heavy. Remember, whenever Jesus saw the effects of sin, it, it made his heart heavy. 
He was moved with compassion when he saw shepherdless sheep. When he saw a man whose body was marred by sin, he sighed. And here, when he faces the hardness of unbelief, it causes him the sadness of a sigh. Now, friends, as we studied the Gospel of Mark, and this would be true of all of the Gospels, we've been faced with the emotional life of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ went through life not simply thinking and acting and speaking, but feeling. The emotional life of our Lord is part of what makes him a perfect, sinless man. He not only thought the right thought, said the right word, did the right action, he always felt the right feeling. And we do well to learn from this dimension of our Lord's life. You see, one aspect of our total depravity you know, total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you can, but it, it means that every part of you has is fallen in sin. Every faculty has fallen in sin. And part of our total depravity is the effect that sin has had on our emotions. We don't feel rightly. Let me present you with an imaginary continuum or spectrum here, an emotions spectrum. And on one end of that spectrum are those of us who are fairly unemotional, coolly unexpressive. They keep a cool head, rarely show any emotion. And such people might be proud of their dispassionate temperament and criticize those who are too emotional. <clears throat> we might describe these people as the feelings are missing people. Almost no emotion, ever. But that's not the ideal. That's not the ideal. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, was an emotional man. And his emotions are expressed in the scriptures, his compassion, his anger, his holy joy, his exasperation. And to be dispassionate and never show any emotions, that's not the ideal. That's not Christ-like. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the feelings are master people. And these are the people who are easily emotional, always emotional, but emotions tend to be king. Emotions tend to rule. They make decisions based on feelings rather than rational thinking. And they may be critical of those coolly cerebral types, a person who never feels anything. And you're proud of the fact that you're expressive in your emotions, but that's not the ideal either. Because although Jesus was an emotional man, his emotions were always subject to his rational faculty. They never overran the banks. He was never governed by his feelings. He had feelings, strong feelings, but they were always under the control of his mind. And then we can create a third category. I think all of us fit in here. The feelings are misplaced people. Where we don't always rejoice as we should with the good and the, the holy. We're not always as angry as we should be over wickedness and evil. We're not always as indignant as we ought to be toward injustice. We're not often moved with compassion toward true suffering. And so because of sin, our emotions are misplaced. That's true of all of us at different times. That's not the ideal either. Jesus always loved and rejoiced in the good. He was angry with the evil, compassionate towards suffering. His emotions were always perfect. And so the first lesson we need to learn 
from Jesus, sighing deeply in his spirit, is that we need to consider the development of our emotional life as part of our sanctification. It should be the goal of all of us to not only think like Jesus and speak like Jesus and act like Jesus and react like Jesus, but to feel as Jesus felt, to have holy emotions like Jesus. For some of you, that means that you need to strive to awaken missing emotions. One pastor describes it in electrical terms. It's like the wires have been spliced between right thinking and emotions. And so you may think rightly, but your emotions don't follow. Those wires splice, uh, uh, split by the fall need to be spliced together by the grace of God. And you, sometimes people who have suffered terrible trauma feel nothing. And it's understandable. They have had to numb their emotions because to feel would be too painful. But as the grace of God brings healing to them through Christ, they need to begin to learn to feel again. If they've suffered trauma, we need to be very patient with them. Don't expect them to feel all at once. But the feelings need to come back. So some of you need to awaken missing emotions. For others, you need to rein in your emotions because you're ruled by your emotions and you act impulsively on the basis of your feelings. That's not good either. You need to learn to analyze and think through things and then let your emotions flow out of right thinking and right analysis. You don't want to be ruled by your emotions. You don't want emotions to be in control. And then all of us, need to, some degree, um, have our, 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 our emotions correspond with truth so that we're angry at things that make God angry. We rejoice in things that produce joy in heaven. We're compassionate where Jesus would be compassionate. We're indignant where Jesus would be indignant. We need to realign our emotions in accordance with truth in accordance with the perfect emotional life of the Lord Jesus. And then before I move on, a second lesson we learn from Jesus here and his sighing, his emotional life, is that when we are faced with hardened unbelief, we need to sigh and feel grief as well. Jesus was called a man of sorrows. And there were a lot of things that produced that sorrow, but one of the things was to face the unbelief of of hardened unbelievers. And it's not something that we can be spared. We have loved ones and friends who, despite all of our prayers and all of our pleadings, remain unbelieving. And it ought to produce grief in our hearts. Now, it ought to keep us praying for them. God may yet save them. But it was the lot of Jesus to be grieved over unbelief, and it is our lot as well. And it is something that we really can't escape. It's part of being in the image of Christ. But now let's consider the adamant resolve in the refusal. In verse 12, Jesus, in response to their request, sighed deeply in his spirit. And then he says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus asks the question, why does this generation seek for a sign? But it's a rhetorical question. He's not asking for information. What he's saying is they have no right to ask for a sign. They've already seen an abundance of signs. So it's it's not to gather information. It's not for an answer. It's rhetorical. And then he makes the statement. He uses the word generation. 
why does this generation seek for a sign? Now, the word generation can refer to people living during a certain period of time, but it also refers to a certain kind of people. In Mark 8, 38, Jesus, Jesus refers to an adulterous and sinful generation. In Mark 9, 19, unbelieving generation, it's a kind of person. It's not only people living at a certain period of time, but it's a, it's a descriptive kind of person. This generation, an unbelieving, adulterous generation, he puts them in that category. And then he makes about as strong a statement as possible in refusing to grant their wish. And this is interesting. If you look at the text, it says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. When Jesus says truly, he says, pay a special attention. I mean, he always speaks truth, but when he says truly, he says this, I really mean business here. If he says truly, truly, he says, pay especially strict attention. And then there's an interesting construction in the original. No sign will be given to this generation is my translation. But if you look in the margin of your Bible, it should say this. It should give you the literal rendering. If a sign is given to this generation, it's a, it's a rare Hebrew construction where you have an if clause, but you don't have a then clause. You follow that? If this happens, then that. Well, here, all you have is the if clause. You don't have the then. If a sign given to this generation, and then there's no then clause. But you were to fill in. If I were to give a sign to this generation, something like, may I die? Or may God punish me? In other words, Jesus is saying, there is no way, no how, that I will give them what they are asking. It is a strong, adamant resolve to refuse them in their request. <clears throat> he knew their hearts. Their motives were obvious. They were foolish, hardened unbelievers. They had only malice toward him, and he would do nothing to gratify their malicious desires. He would, in the language of Proverbs, not answer a fool after his folly. And so his refusal to grant that sign was a pronouncement of judgment upon them. And then finally we see the retreat from those requesting a sign after refusing. In, in, in modern parlance, saying, no way, no how will I ever give you a sign. I'm not going to kowtow to your desire. It is unwarranted. You've seen plenty of signs. And in your hardened unbelief, I will not satisfy you. And then verse 13 says, leaving them. He again embarked and went away to the other side. Jesus caps off his refusal to accommodate to their carnal request by leaving their presence. And I want here to read from some of the commentators and what they say about this. Matthew Henry says, he left them as men not fit to be talked with. He left them to their strong delusions. Christ will not tarry long with those that tempt him, but justly withdraws from those that are disposed to quarrel with him. He left them irreclaimable. He left them to themselves. He left them in the hand of their own counsels. So he gave them up to their own heart's lusts. William Lane, the commentator, says, nothing could be expected to result from further discussion with them. They lack the discernment to see the tokens of the kingdom as visible in Jesus' words and actions. The gospel remains hidden from unbelief. 
William Hendrickson says they are abandoned to the destiny which they, by their hardness of heart, have chosen for themselves. And Spurgeon says, Our Lord quitted such persons, for there was nothing to be done with them. Lord, don't leave any one of us a sure sentence of death. It's a fearful thing to have Christ sigh deeply over you, refuse your request, and turn his back on you and leave. And as I close, I want to appeal, first of all, to anyone here who may be an unbeliever, maybe some of you children who have not yet fully put your faith in Jesus, you've not been changed by him. There's a strong warning here for unbelievers. And the warning is this, that it is possible to get to the place where you are beyond repentance, where God literally gives you over to your own ways. Listen to Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In verse 28, and just as they did not fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. The, the word depraved is sometimes translated reprobate, unapproved. You see, a person can get to the place where they so insistently say, my will be done, my will be done, that God says, okay, have it your way, your will be done. And they get to the place where they are beyond the ability to repent. Proverbs 19 or 29.1, he who stiffens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly broken beyond remedy. And when Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem, in Luke 19, it says they did not know the day of their visitation. God had visited them. This was the day of opportunity. This was the time to believe. And they missed it. They missed the opportunity to believe. They did not recognize the day of their visitation. And I say this to any of you who are not yet believers. Don't continue to say no to Jesus. Because it is possible to say no often enough that you go beyond the point where you can repent. Now you say, are you trying to scare me? Absolutely. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's a fearful thing to say, not now, not now. I'm going to repent later. I want to enjoy my life uh, later on, later on, later on. He who stiffens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly broken beyond remedy. There is a doctrine of reprobation. It is possible to get to that place where you're beyond repenting. You've so hardened your heart that you can't turn back. And so my plea to anyone who is an unbeliever here, please don't continue to say no to Jesus. Repent, turn from your independence from God, turn from your sins, put your faith in Jesus. Do it today, do it now. Don't risk hardening your heart like these Pharisees and have Jesus turn his back on you and leave you. While he stands with open arms saying, come to me, obey him, believe him. Come to him and be saved. And then finally, what does that mean for us as, unbelie as believers, as we are called to witness? Well, we do well to include in our gospel a warning such as that, to warn people that they dare not delay. They dare not put it off. 
Today is the day of salvation. I think we need to urge upon them the urgency. It is possible to get to the place where you harden your heart beyond remedy. And I think that can be part of our warning to people in our witness. Don't let that happen. We need to have an urgency. You need to believe now. The delay could be tragic. And then finally, I think there is a time when we obey Jesus' words to not cast our pearls in front of swine. Remember how he said that in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't cast your pearls in front of swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and attack you. We have to be led by God in this, but there are some people who are so scoffing and so unbelieving when we bring up the truth that the Lord would not have us give them the truth because he doesn't want the precious pearls of his gospel truth trampled under the feet of men. Now, that's not often that we do that, but evidently there are occasions when we are to obey that and not cast our pearls before certain swine. You'll have to decide before God when that is. Generally, though, we're sharing the gospel again and again and again with hopes that God will use it and eventually break through to the praise of his grace and glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the lessons gleaned from this particular portion of your word. Help us to take these things to heart. Help us to grow in our emotional lives to become more like you, Lord Jesus, and help us as we relate to unbelievers, to feel the grief that you felt when you were faced with hardened unbelief, but also by your grace to persevere in pleading and praying with lost, for lost sinners. We ask in your name.